Hello and welcome to Verge ESP, a podcast about art and science on The Verge. My name is Emily Yoshida. I am the entertainment editor at The Verge. I'm Liz Lopato. I'm the science editor at The Verge and I've got some hot science for you today. <laughs> serve, it, serve it to me fresh. <laughs> so this morning, uh, this is Thursday, the ISS was supposed to deploy its first ever expandable module. You like inflate it. Basically, it's a fold-up habitat, and it's was supposed to be inflated to its full size as a like trial of the technology today. And the inflation began, right? Like that, that, that happened. But then uh, something went wrong. The, the the module didn't expand. So they are stopping, and they are going to try to figure out why it didn't work. And if they can figure out if it's safe to continue testing it, they're gonna go back to trying to test it again tomorrow on Friday. So they couldn't blow up a balloon? Yeah, they couldn't blow up a, a, a balloon that you can potentially live in in space. That you can live in. And this is a thing you could live in in space, not on a, a not on the moon, not on a surface. This is just like a well. So here's space the thing: bubble, right? Like the idea is that like if you can have habitats that you assemble in space, it, they take a lot less a lot less energy to launch. They're cheaper, um, yeah. and so like if you can inflate things in space and then live in them, then potentially that technology would lead to less costly launches. That kind of thing. Okay, so. It's it's so then it's different. We're talking about like different. I guess there's like no atmospheric pressure, so there might be like I I I don't actually know. Can you blow up a balloon in space? Is that something you can do? I, 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 that is a good question. <laughs> Maybe I I mean I was gonna make fun of NASA for not being able to like like blow up the guest uh, inflatable mattress for when your old roommate comes to visit you. But yeah, no, this is like the kind of thing, like the, the company that's making this is called Bigelow Airspace and they want to launch commercial space habitats and like ideally a space hotel in these inflatable pods. So this is sort of like a, a, a test run of whether it's even possible. And it looks like oh they ran into some hitches. Man, space hotel. How far off is space hotel? From oh happening? man, a while I think. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I mean, you have to sense that. Like, where is uh, where is uh, Lance Bass gonna stay when he goes up into space? He needs to have a nice, like, yeah. I don't know, nice quarters. Anyway, um, we also wanted to follow up on uh, a story that we spent some time talking about a while ago, just because it kind of in, about because it, in, it impacted our our uh, line of work in a way. Um, the Gawker and Hulk Hogan trial, which of course ended with uh, a huge amount of wait what was it 150 million dollars yes millions Uh, and millions of dollars enough to essentially shut gawker media and they had to sell part of the company and everything and um you know there was some debate at the time over you know freedom of the press and or did gawker get what it deserved because it infringed on the privacy of a, a private individual what's a private individual especially when it's a celebrity especially when that celebrity is hulk hogan what does it mean to do it for the clicks yeah yeah how much would you do for some yeah how much would you do it for the clicks um well there was an interesting twist this week oh my god okay so if you follow <laughs> me on twitter you know that my mind has been blown by this um but this whole thing this whole lawsuit was funded by a billionaire with a grudge because he didn't like that valley wag which is a now defunct blog that belonged to gawker outed him nine years ago 
I just want you to like let like before we get into any analysis of that analysis of that, I just want that to like let that sink in. Like this is some like Alexis Carrington Colby shit, okay? <laughs> we have some like straight up dynasty happening right now. Like if this isn't a good argument for taxing billionaires out of existence, I don't know what is. Like this guy's hobby is lawsuits. That's what he does for fun. He's done it to the tune of ten million dollars. Yeah. He's not even personally involved. He just wants to ruin Gawker. And like here's the thing. Here is the thing. Um, what's scary to me about this is that somebody has tried to do similar stuff to Mother Jones. And like when mm -hmm. I was discussing this with a friend last night, she was like, I had to, in order to think about this in a reasonable way, I had to replace all of the principles with people I actually liked. Yeah. So yeah. we're imagining that it's Janelle Monet's sex tape, Mother Jones published it, <laughs> and Martha Stewart funded the whole thing. Uh huh. So that you we mean, can just. You mean Martha Stewart funded the. Um Funded the lawsuit. The lawsuit. That's right. Okay. Okay. Because that's the only way for us to just kind of because like, otherwise Oprah? you're just like, well, How all about of these Oprah. Oprah. Great. Oprah. Oprah yeah. did it. Right. Like and like. <laughs> right. Because like this lets you be a little more sympathetic to everybody involved because I like yeah I feel no sympathy for any of the principles. Right. Probably. Yeah. Um, and that can be confusing. And I was watching people say, oh well, Gawker deserves to die, and then other people like Teal is a you know a real threat to the freedom of the press, uh, which he is. Um, but Gar, that doesn't, but that, that, that doesn't necessarily justify publishing a sex tape. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I feel like you kind of have to take, at this point, I feel like the sex tape is irrelevant. He just seized upon the first thing with a semi-public figure where the, the, that figure was, had something else to be mad at well, Gawker about and, and it seized upon it. Well, this isn't even like the first thing because he's, he's admitted that he's funded a bunch of other lawsuits. Like what he is trying to do is not to litigate the value of any particular story in court, but simply to bleed Gawker through legal costs until they can no longer publish and go out of right. existence. Meanwhile, he's he's trying to pretend that this is a philanthropic effort because he cares about the free press, which makes me just furious. Yeah. That's pretty, I mean, I, we are getting into a uh, territory where, I mean, theoretically the same thing could happen, like, like, like Vladimir Putin could do the same thing to like some, you know, uh, American out outlet or whatever. I would love, love nothing better for all of the people who are justifying this than for George Soros to <laughs> turn around and support every possible lawsuit against the uh, NRO, the National Review. I would love nothing better. <laughs> You want to know what this is like? Fine. That's what it is. Like, think about that, how you would feel about that if you're like, well, you know, Peter Thiel has a right and money is free speech. Like, OK, what happens when Mark Zuckerberg decides to sue the Wall Street Journal out of existence? Yeah. Like, th like this is an existential threat to any publication because billionaires pockets are so deep. And it's such an disproportionate response to me. It's like you want to swat a fly and you're going to use a jackhammer and you kill the fly but you tear up all of the pavement everywhere. No, the, the, it's, the problem is, is not even having a jackhammer, wanting to use a jackhammer. The, the problem is that you are a giant living in a city full of normal-sized people and you want to swat a fly. Like, you're... It, you cannot... You almost cannot help but have your reaction to be completely disproportionate because of how many bazillions of dollars more you have than the average person and what kind of... Um, what kind of level of existence, I guess, or plane of existence, I guess, you're living in because of that and how that separates you from the kind of um, perspective or, or um, yeah, just, yeah, the kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Where, I, I don't know. Peter Thiel, if you're not familiar with him, pushed Elon Musk out of PayPal. 
Mm-hmm. He doesn't. He thinks that the country has gone downhill since women have been granted the right to vote. He is a delegate for Donald Trump, and oh, yeah. he also That's important. yeah, Donald Trump who wants to make it easier to sue publications for libel. Just putting it out there. Just connect the dots. And who also, this is my favorite part, has proposed a seasteading island so he will no longer have to pay taxes, to which I wish he would go and stay and never come back. <laughs> I mean, like, if, if, if for every time Donald Trump has tweeted, like, the lying New York Post or the lying New York Magazine or whatever, like, like, you know, garbage magazine that's a failure. If all of those, you know, insults hurled at different publications that had anything negative to say about Donald Trump or his wife, if all of those were turned into lawsuits, like, you know, <laughs> if, if you decided well, to file suit against Vanity Fair for, for for reporting, not even here's the thing that makes me crazy, right? Like you're not even adjudicating whether or not the story is correct or whether or not it's something that should be published. You're no, just, you just trying to like bleed it. out. You're just trying to bleed out the publication so that it dies through putting them in litigation forever. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of Cersei Lannister sending all of the little sparrows are out into, or were they sparrows? No, no, wrong bird. Just little birds. birds. Little birds, yeah, uh, uh, to go find anybody who has said anything negative about her and murder them. I, uh, we are going to talk about Game of Thrones in a second, but I don't know why I made a transition for something that wasn't happening right now. <laughs> I just I wanted to really quickly, though, just do a nod towards some things that I've been watching lately, um, specifically in the Netflix category of moody Tom Hiddleston performances. I, I, I watch neither of these things on Netflix, so I, I'm not I don't know what I'm talking about. But I've I've been watching a lot of um, on demand television because I am in the process of moving. And that's what you do to distract yourself from the existential sorrow of moving is watch a lot of TV. I watched a film, High Rise, which came out about a month ago, I want to say, in theaters and on demand. And I have also watched all but the last episode of The Night Manager. Um, That's my treat tonight. I'm going to watch the last episode of The Night Manager, which has been airing on AMC. It originally aired in the UK, though I forget what channel it was on. Liz, what do you think of Tom Hiddleston as as a performer, as a human specimen? Uh... I mostly associate him with weird fangirls who are super into him as Loki. Is, am I even getting the actor right here? Yeah, yeah. He's Loki in the okay. Avengers movies. Um, so I want to be extremely clear with you that I, I have seen exactly one movie that he is in, mm-hmm. which in which he played Loki, and he seemed fine. Okay. Like, I, like that is my whole opinion. Like, he seemed fine. I don't know. You know uh, what? I I was complete. I did not get what the big deal was. I think the Loki look is not that flattering. I want to say, I, I actually like I cannot find anybody to be attractive in the MCU movies anymore. Like it's all so plasticky that even like Robert Downey Jr. is no longer attractive to me because of those movies because he's just been re- rendered inert to me. Like he's he doesn't feel like a human being in those movies. Nobody feels like a human being in them. That is besides the point. <laughs> uh, you know what? You know what made me get into Tom Hiddleston, Tommy H, as I have written him down here here on the on the rundown. Uh, Only Lovers Left Alive, the Jim Jarmusch film, where he oh, plays yeah, yeah, a yeah. vampire who's like like life partners across history. Death with, partners, maybe. Yeah, life and death partners with with Tilda Swinton. Um, pretty good ship. 
pretty good ship. I, I mean, and it's just I, that movie is just a fantasy about like being a cool hipster forever and wearing sunglasses on an airplane. Like that's all that it's about. But um, I, I enjoyed him in it and I kind of got it. I got why people are into him. I don't know that I think he's a good actor, though. That's the thing. I'm still puzzling it out. It kind of reminds me of when I was really into Ewan McGregor as a, as a teen and tween, where I was super into, like, super, just thought he was so dreamy, such, like, just, like, so into Obi-Wan Kenobi. And, uh, I, and with each new film that I saw him in, I was like, even, even as, like, a 15-year-old, I was like, is he a good actor? I can't really tell. But he's been in some interesting films, so I think that's, like, to his credit. Night Manager is based on a John Le Carre novel that is very much in a, in a zone that I enjoy. It involves a, a very, very deep undercover spy job, a lot of luxurious things like yachts and an arms dealer and, and a lot of exotic locations. And Tom Hiddleston is a, a, a guy who volunteers to go undercover to take down this arms dealer played by Hugh Laurie. Who I also Ooh. like a lot. I, I love Hugh Laurie. Yeah. I love him to just like a totally unreasonable degree. You know what's great? You know what's even better than Hugh Laurie? Like as I feel like most American audiences know him as 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 House. Uh, Hugh Laurie just doing a British accent. It's it's like oh man, this is what you sound like when you're not like over pronouncing over enunciating your R's and like being really growly and I'm an American, I'm Hugh Laurie, like like Hugh Laurie just being an evil arms dealer with a with a perfect British accent is like great, into it. I I, I would recommend Hugh Laurie as uh, Bertie Wooster um, mm. in the Wooster and G. Oh stuff. yeah, of course, yes. Well, that's like classic. Speaking um, of British actors, I think we need to move on. And, okay. Anyway, I was just going to say I watched Night Manager, which I enjoyed, and High Rise, which is like, I, I guess we could have a longer conversation about dystopian um, class war films, but um, we're out of time and we have to move on to Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> We wanted to talk, talk about Game of Thrones again this week, and we wanted to give everybody plenty of advance warning that we are going to be talking about spoilers. So I think if you skip ahead, probably about 10 minutes, we'll be past this subject and on to something that can never be spoiled, um, yes. like algorithms. But <laughs> but this this was a big episode of Game of Thrones, so we just wanted to like kind of have have our moment with it i know that you've had some thoughts liz about um the element of time travel getting involved or getting kind of injected into the story and and particularly bran's role in the overall story um i hate bran it turns out i wasn't very fond of him to begin with uh -huh. like I didn't, I didn't find him especially narratively compelling or like interesting and I just like like it was like the scenes that I would be like do I need to fast forward through this should I fast forward through this and sometimes I did uh -huh. and so fucking Bran is responsible for most of the events that have occurred right like dude doesn't do what he's what his parents tell him and he decides to climb the wall and he sees the queen having sex with her brother they throw him out the window and that is the beginning of everything going to hell yeah okay I just want to be super clear that we yeah. remember who's responsible here. Yeah, the things so, I do for love. Right. Yeah. So next up, we have Hodor. 
turns out Bran did that one too. Uh huh. Because you know we've got these visions going on. He's traveling back to the past, and like we see that he might be able to influence some of this because he calls to his father, who turns around as though he can hear them. Yeah. And then he wargs into Hodor in the past, which then right. affects present Hodor, I guess. Like Hodor well, is just getting warged into in multiple. So I can't, here's the the part that I can't tell, right, is like, he wargs into Hodor, I think in the present, from the past, and something about that seems to warp the past Hodor. No, he can't warg into Hodor in the present because he's in vision coma, like he's out. He's warging into him because he sees him, he's in the little courtyard in, in, in Winterfell, and he's, you know, hearing Mira's voice not in his vision and that's kind of getting transmitted to like pat like willis teen teen hodor and i mean i think i i I feel like this has been kind of divisive i think i think i think most people would agree that this episode was very emotionally affecting and i think yes and successful in that way and i didn't feel like it was particularly manipulative although i do kind of question like what's the actual benefit of him holding the door i guess we'll find out next week but it seems like those guys, those those whites are gonna break through in two minutes. Like, it, yeah, cool two minute head start. Like, what are you gonna do with it? Yeah, but you know, that th- that was a theme though of the of the episode was that there are no small parts. Like, everybody will be in their pl- their right place at the right time. That's what the 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 red priestess who comes to visit Varys tells him. Like, you know, there's a reason you're here right now to be converted into a red priest, which is my theory but about so, it. <laughs> so the thing that I, I, I want to talk about specifically with respect to time travel is that we now know that it is possible to influence events from the past in the future, right? Yeah. Because uh, Hodor has been Hodor for quite some time, mm-hmm. um, but, th- not, but that didn't occur until Bran warged into him for many years later. Yeah. Which gives us a couple of things. One, it means that we know that their universe probably does not work the same way our universe does because we think that all events in the past determine events in the future here. Yeah. There there is no reverse causality where the future influences the past. That is not the case for Game of Thrones. No. Which means that none of these people have free will. No, yeah. It's um it's a causal loop. I think that's what yeah. it's called. It's yeah. like it's like in um it's like in primer. It's like it's all there's no there is no beginning and end point in it. It just keeps going and going and going. Like if you asked you know, it's sort of convenient that Hodor can't speak because when people ask him as an adult Hodor, like, why can't you, why, you used to be able to speak. Why can't you speak anymore? I think Mira asks him that, like a couple, or maybe Bran asks him. Oh, yeah, because Bran asks him because he saw him and he can't say anything. But if he were to say something, what would he say? He would say, <laughs> I was traumatized as a child by For being forced to experience my own death at the horde of zombies. For you. Yeah. For, for you, you, little magic boy. Um, yeah. Can I just say how much little magic boys irritate me? Like, yeah. I, like that trope of like little special magic people, like fuck them all. Like really though. I Yeah. I think the, the, the thing about Bran, I was not against Bran from the beginning, mostly because Bran was a very cute little boy and like he would, you know, get carried around by the giant. And I thought that that was like a nice image. It was very, it seemed kind of, it felt very mythical in a way, like, like a real like a real myth, not something that was made for a contemporary edgy uh, fantasy novel. But I think the thing about Bran was that he's all he's a character that was all about potential, right? Like he 
he had this accident which made him, you know, was unable to walk and then he started to have, you know, being able to, 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 to see the world through summer and realize he was a warg and realizing he was able to, a green scene. What is that? What, what, what's the difference between warging and green scene again? I don't know. So I think warging is, is animals and green sight is plants because what he keeps um, tapping into is the memory of those the tree. special fancy trees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, anyway, he finds out he can do both of those things. And and then it's sort of like, okay, well, like, when is Bran going? This is the case with a lot of characters. It's like, when are we going to see 100% Bran? Like, when are we going to see Bran do his, like, thing and finally be his full self? And I think that we kind of have. I think that's the thing. But for some reason, it feels underwhelming, partly because I think that the kid that was cute brand grew up to be not a very good actor i was kind of thinking that during one of the flashbacks where he has to react to all the, this army of white walkers all around him or, or whites or whatever all around him and like the reaction is just very i mean i'm sure that it was all like blue screen cgi and he wasn't looking at much but it was still very like <sighs> like this is who we're watching like there are so many good actors on the show <laughs> and and the show want... keeps killing them off yeah like, that's, yeah that's like that's nutty like that's the part that's nuttiest to me is like you have all of these fabulous older actors and you've just murdered them and now i'm left with bran well who's not compelling we um well i mean i wonder you know i wonder if this this hodor plot was written in so that christian nairn who plays hodor could pursue his uh his DJ career full time. Well, no, I think I think my understanding is that this is like actually this was generated from George R. R. Yeah, Martin. no, it, it it is his his plot. I'm just, yeah, it's it's. An, I guess we still have we still have Jonathan Price, who I think is like probably the best actor on it right now, like currently in in the in rotation. But yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people leaving the board. I like the actress who played Osha a lot. I thought that was a very unfortunate death. Um, yep. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, it, it, how do you feel about time travel ent- entering what we thought was like even kind of a, a unconventional? It's still pretty straightforward fantasy show. Well, I think it opens up a lot of sort of narrative things that I'm not sure that I necessarily want. Like, for instance, if we go with my brand is responsible for everything theory. Mm-hmm. What we're going to see is that Bran is going to try to prevent this whole thing from happening and in so doing drive somebody crazy. For instance, the Mad King. Or Daenerys. Or <laughs> worse, it's going to turn out that Bran is in fact the Bran the Builder that everybody's been talking about. And like he was the thing, he was the person that set this all up in the first place in the hopes yeah. of like, oh, we know winter is coming. We know the wall is coming. So I'd better build the wall. You know? Yeah. Like, isn't there a, like, isn't there a theory that all the brands are one brand? Like now that I don't know, I it's gotten so metaphysical. That's the thing. I mean, I guess I guess I feel like I'm not I'm not opposed to it, but I feel like it's not gonna be Game of Thrones' strongest foot to put forward. I could be interesting, but I still feel like you and I, I, I think like we're both really into talky kind of like real politic type Game of Thrones. Like yes. we're into like. People sniping each other, people having plots, people sending secret armies to places and scheming and anything anything adjacent to Littlefinger, anything adjacent to Cersei or Elena or or Marjorie, like all in. Uh, that stuff is like very, very compelling to keep watching. Yes. And that watching Sansa grow into a more effective Littlefinger, like I am yes. here 
for it. No, she's she she is she is learning well from her, and I feel like it's not gonna sit very well with her very, very straight laced night lady. But anyway, I, I yeah, I I don't know. I, I it's also kind of the it is the area of the plot I'm I'm least interested in. The the tree stuff. Yeah, I don't care. Like again, I've 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 bitched about how much I am bored by like flashbacks before, but like this whole like backstory is so unnecessary given all of the world building we have already done. Yeah, like you know what I'm into? I'm into Pike. Like we have not spent any time in Pike. I love watching all the weird stuff they do in Pike because it's like cool. It's a new place. It's a new place for me to explore that's happening right now and affects characters I'm already familiar with. Um, I, I like their crazy baptism thing. I like their cra- I like the crowns made of driftwood. I'm like, oh, this is a new, interesting. Like that's how you feel the first when you start getting into Game of Thrones and you're watching the first couple of seasons. It's like, what is this place? Like I see some things that feel like cultures that I'm aware of historically but then there's other stuff like what's the religion what's the deal with the religion here like I I guess I geek out about that stuff more than like than like time travel stuff or uh I I don't know I I geek about world building more than anything else uh yeah so yeah I don't know um this may be like depending on how this this winds up happening you know like how much time travel I'm expected to put up with this may be the thing that finally (laughs) sours me on Game of Thrones One of the things that's been going on that's, again, news adjacent and and has also science adjacent and sort of is in this weird space where it's tech and science and also the media uh, has been a bunch of debate about algorithms, Mm -hmm. which can be kind of opaque. And the reason I bring this up is that there's been this whole discussion about Facebook, the trending topics, which I I don't use Facebook. I don't know if people actually even look at them. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. I don't know how important they are, but people are upset. Well, um, we were kind of talking about this last week also with regard to just confirmation bias or something within, but within algorithms and like yeah. how there are, you know, we were talking about with Ghostbusters and just how there's people who you can, you can exist in an internet that, that agrees with everything that you think if you that's want. That's right. And like one of the things that's going on is like, people are like, oh, it's an algorithm. It's neutral. Well, no. <laughs> it turns out that's not true. In fact, it's possible if you're pulling information from people, mm-hmm. you are also pulling their biases, right? I can't believe that anybody would make the, the argument that, that algorithms are not biased in this, in this instance. Like, isn't the whole point that it mirrors your bias? Like, that's the whole point of well, it. if you remember, like, Tay, uh, the AI chatbot, um, yeah. within a day, Twitter taught her to be super fucking racist. Okay. Yeah. And the thing is, it, like, it turns out that if you design bots in a certain way, like, there's a whole sort of, like, group of people who think about bot ethics and who have thought about bot ethics, and, like, Microsoft was not one of them, but that's fine. <laughs> there are ways to get around these sort of known stumbling blocks. Like, the most obvious one is racism. The next most obvious one is sexism. There are ways to go around them. There are ways to make sure that, you know, you don't have your bot tweeting shit that's racist or sexist. Mm-hmm. And there's like a a community of people who are bot makers. They have a bot summit. They've been trying to think about a common ethical code. They have like like an open blacklist of slurs, for instance, that their bots cannot say. That's like just the blacklist of things that like, you know, it's open. Anybody can pull it, you know. Yeah. And and so it's just like there's like the thing about artificial intelligence is that it's neither artificial nor intelligent. Right. Like. Right. It's 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 built by us. And it is replicating the intelligence 
in some respects of the person who is programming it in unexpected ways right like right it's not learning necessarily except for how you told it to learn like you set the meta code i mean it's in the same way that anything created by a human will probably reflect that human in ways that might not even be intentional i mean that's like i don't know that's a dominant theory within any kind of art or music or or film or anything like that that you cannot help but have your values in something that you create right and that's true even of bots and algorithms and so on like there is there is like a certain amount of that that goes on and like you have to you have to put in effort in order to make sure that you aren't going to create something that is going to be racist that is going to be sexist that's going to be you know any of a variety of other things and like in fa- if you fail to do that you are also espousing a worldview your own where right. you know those things are fine well so i'm interested in this though i did, i wasn't aware of these bot summits because um i think that's very interesting and kind of i guess i guess it seems a little paradoxical to the idea of i guess what most people think of being the ideal result of AI, which is that you make something that is indistinguishable from a human and learns and makes mistakes the same way that a human does and has that same process that's mimicked through, you know, code or whatever else. So humans, though, don't have a list of bad words that they can't use. In fact, if humans are given, handed a a list of words that they should not say as children, they will probably say those words because that's how kids are well um yeah no i mean the the the, so here is the thing there are sort of two schools of thought right like you have some bot makers who think that it's more important to make sure that their bots are sort of inhuman and kind of alien so you have like the bots that darius kazimi makes which are like two headlines right Mm -hmm. um where it just smashes together two headlines and it's like or like i'm thinking of another bot um how to sext um it's at wiki sext on twitter and mm-hmm. so it says things like, sext, I start threading my eyebrows while you excitedly recognize the benefits of threading your eyebrows. <laughs> okay? Like, stuff like that that is clearly inhuman, but is also, like, there's something artistic about it. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's a really, really great motherboard piece that came out a little while back about this um, that, that I would recommend you go read if you're curious to learn more. But, like, there, there is, that's, that's one school of thought, is that you make abstract bots that are very clearly alien and not people. And then there's sort of another school of thought, like, um, you know, Rob Dubbin, who made um, at Olivia Taters, who sort of imitates a teen girl. That's more difficult, right? Uh-huh. Like, like, so, like, even though she's got, like, a blacklist of slurs, like, sometimes she winds up saying something accidentally racist because she has melded together two sentences. And in doing that, something happened, right? Hmm. So there are other ways of, of thinking about it. Like, one, one, one way of thinking about it is that maybe bots don't need to be human-like. Bots are yeah. bots. You let them yeah. be bots. You let them be, like, absolutely alien. And in that way, like, they avoid some of the problems that you come up with. The other requires really rigorous policing. Like, uh, you know, Rob Dubbin has to go in and manually delete stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. And really keep an eye on it and make sure that, like, she only replies to people who are following her, those kinds of things, so that, like, any possible harm is as minimized as possible, you know? Yeah. I think maybe one solution is to, like, not try to build human-like AI. Well, isn't that kind of also the philosophy? Is that, was Peter Thiel one of the guys who's, like, really, like, freaked out about evil evil AI? No, that's Elon Musk, who Peter uh, Thiel, yeah. Peter Thiel, um, threw out of PayPal 
Um, yeah. And yeah, there's a whole backstory there. But yes. Okay. I didn't Pete. know he, if he was also involved in that. But no, like, that's just Elon. But that's sort of the theory, though. It is like, you know, if, but we should probably keep any kind of artificial intelligence that we build or any kind of bot entity that we build, like, like sufficiently hobbled so that it cannot, you know, get out of control. And I mean, like, this isn't just like chatbots, right? Like, there was a ProPublica right. report recently um, about an algorithm that's used to predict the likelihood of convicts committing um, future crime. Mm. And I'm, I like, it's, it's, it's already racist. Yeah, like, of course. So you know, like, two people got arrested. One of them, it was her first arrest. Uh, she, you know, had like a, a four juvenile misdemeanors and no subsequent offenses. And another guy had two armed robberies and after the the bot had generated risk, after that did a grand theft, right? Mm-hmm. He's white, she's black, he's rated high, low risk, she's rated high risk. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like that's, it's like that simple. Yeah. And so like you begin to see the way that these algorithm al- algorithmic biases play out in much more scary ways like yeah. it's easier to talk about Twitter bots because you see them and they're low stakes and whatever. But like this ProPublica investigation, like really and like the Facebook stuff, like people should really be aware that like just because you've outsourced to an algorithm doesn't mean that you're not biased. Yeah. Also, you know, that we should probably, in addition to figuring out guidelines for what a bot can and can't do or what kind of limitations we should put on it, we should probably also like set some guidelines for what areas of our society should or should not involve bots. Like I would I would submit that criminal justice systems should not um, employ uh, artificial intelligence. I think I think there shouldn't be bots in news either because I had a no, really yeah. bad experience where like I had tweeted about a story that it appeared that basically was like the upside of all the people dying young from opiate overdoses is that there's a lot more organs available for or, you know people who need who need to have transplants and it was like this totally awful tone deaf article. I had tweeted it to critique it and this bot picks it up retweets it and it like with the problematic stuff not with my criticism and then attributes it to me oh my god i got in a fight with the creator who was like it's just a bot and i was like fuck you something shouldn't be done by bots and then he was like well i've never had any complaints before and like it was like one of those things well you had one now like welcome to your first complaint asshole And, you know, Jeez. I mean, it's one of those things where it's like there are places where human judgment is absolutely critical. Even Facebook knows that. That's why they're they're not purely AI. Like, that's why they have humans like weeding this stuff out. And like when you come to certain sensitive subjects, it is really important to make sure that you have that final check by human eyes because we know things that bots don't. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I didn't even know. Like, I'm so I should know more about this stuff because I'm very interested in it. I feel like especially from the news angle, like, I mean, I knew that they were kind of talking about that or having like a completely automated a completely automated news outlets or, or content aggregation farms or something but it's yeah I feel it's something that should probably have a little bit of legislation on it um, just for the bigger stuff not for a Twitter bot but you know I don't know the bigger stuff is coming the bigger stuff is always coming you know that's that's the job of uh, figuring out how to operate in a rapidly uh, automated society is figure like uh, predicting these problems like 10 years ahead of time I don't know so somebody should get on that that's my that's my opinion we need somebody who can relate to stupid young people hey neighbors 
So Liz, last week I asked you to go see Neighbors 2, Sorority Rising. Which I did. Well, yes. I asked you to because I had heard surprisingly good things about it and I was interested in it. And I uh, I just turned around and didn't see Neighbors 2 over the weekend and uh, kind of left you out in the cold there, which for which I apologize. <laughs> My excuse, as I said before we started recording, is that I saw the Angry Birds movie um, on Friday and and could not see any filmed entertainment for 48 hours. But that's not really true. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I want to hear from you, though, about Neighbors 2. Is it the most progressive comedy sequel that has ever been made, as I've been seeing so hyper- hyperbolically across like all of film reviews? No. <laughs> I mean, it's fine. It's a fun movie. And like it goes out of its way. Like There are moments that are jokes where like it's predicated on your understanding of living in like a racist and sexist society. And yeah. like some of them are really funny. Okay. Like there's yeah. one where like two black police officers get tips on who on campus is selling weed. And like, so they break in, they're like scary. And like, they're like yelling at the kids. They're like, get on the floor, all of this for the white kids. And then they break into like this, this dorm and it's a bunch of black kids. And they're like, Oh, hi. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we need to take you down to the station. We're just going to have a talk if you're hungry we can stop and get like some taco bell on the way but you really need to come with us uh-huh <laughs> which is like you know if you're familiar with at all with the trope of how well, how violent not even a trope just like it's this, not a trope it's just a real life thing a, that happens, a thing that happens in life all the time <laughs> of, of you know like the disproportionate res- violent response to to black people like this is pretty like sick and Wait, like was also it dylan roof who was given our like yes got, that is dylan tacos? roof yeah that's yeah. right the the mass yeah. murderer yeah so you know there was something like there's there are moments where you're just like okay i see you that's and actually like i don't know i think there's there are ways to approach these kinds of things that are funny and i think neighbors did a really good job of that uh-huh but like i would not like i don't know like it was just a movie it was right. fine it was a good movie i laughed um <laughs> there was a lot of gross out humor and like i am not the biggest fan of gross out humor um, what kind of gross out humor are we talking though like is it more more um uh sexual or more uh not sexual <laughs> a little bit body both. fluid yeah yeah like like there's one where like two characters are having sex and one character vomits into the mouth of another character and realizes mm. she's pregnant mm I mean, I, I'm sure I know what characters these are just from knowing the broad strokes of the film. Well, this but... is like the first five minutes of the film. You know, vomiting vomiting should be used more as a comedy beat. I think I've been seeing a lot of complaints recently about um, vomiting used as a dramatic beat. Like, instead of having somebody cry, you can have them vomit to show how upset they are about something. Like, that's been, that happens a lot. That happens in The Night Manager, actually. But uh, I still think that there's lots more comedic potential for for vomiting as a, as, a, as a comedy beat. Like, especially when somebody just keeps vomiting. They can't stop vomiting. I, I, think that's I will say, though, that there were a couple <laughs> of Pratt Falls where I was like, yeah, that definitely should have broken your neck. And I think that like, like I, I, I can't suspend my disbelief enough well, to like actually kind of, get with the Pratt Fall. Yeah, they kind of have like Looney Tunes physics though, right? Yes. Like people, people get flung all over the place. I mean, like that sort of reminds me of like Project X or something. We're just yeah. like teenage superheroes who can like drink as much as they want and belly flop into pools and stuff and be totally fine. So there's like one sequence where like you know, and it's 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 Looney Tune physics, absolutely. Where like, um, Zach Efron like should have broken his neck three different ways, 
Uh-huh. And like like that's like just physically how the body works. And like I was so like terrified like watching the thing that like it was like actually not funny to me. <laughs> like the pratfall wasn't funny. Yeah. And like I don't know, like maybe this is just my own bias, but like if you're living in like a world that is clearly adjacent to our own or like our own Yes, like, that those those physics do need to apply. Like if you are living in Looney Tune cartoon world, then there needs to be like more cartoonishness for me. Yeah, I think maybe you just have to. Yeah, you have to signify it through other means and make an audience prepared for what kind of movie this is. So that the, by the time somebody is like running into a wall and smashing like a pancake against it and then pulling themselves away and their fingers spring back into three dimensions, uh, people right. are ready for it. Because like when it happened, like in Stephen Chow's The Mermaid, which is, you know, I love. Yes. Like I was prepared in part because there were mermaids in the film. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. I knew that this was like going to be like this could be cartoony. I also know Stephen Chow is cartoony. Like that's just his his mode. And like so. So this was not that. And then all of a sudden I had to believe in the cartoon. And I it was very that was that was like my biggest problem with the movie, I think. Do you, it's sort of interesting to me that the, like the, a lot of these films still do rely on big physical humor like that. I mean, I feel like the, the premise of this film Yes, it involves parties, it involves wild behavior, but I don't feel like it involves pratfalls. I feel like it involves like a clash of one group of people versus another and they don't see eye to eye and it's about that kind of tension there. Like that like very, very basic comedic tension between like people who are uptight and people who are like wild and crazy. But and- like the it is, but I think it's also about aging. And like th- that's yeah. really highlighted. I didn't see the first one, but I was talking with friends of mine over the weekend before I saw the second one who had seen the first one and wanted to see the second one. And they were like, oh, you're going to like it so much. It's about aging and being in your 30s. And I <laughs> I kind of got that. But also at the same time, like... It's, I a, very, this- it's a specific kind of aging, though. Like kid yeah. aging. Well, it's not just that, though. Because like I was the person who would knock on the door of the dorm next to me at midnight. Like, yo, I have a Latin class at 8 a.m. and I need you to shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I've been that person my entire life. Like that's not a thing I have aged into. That is just who I am. Yeah. Like- <laughs> yeah. So, That's like, you true. know, these moments of, like, oh, my God, we've aged into being uncool, like, don't really resonate for me in the same way that I think they might resonate for other people because I have never been cool. Like, I have no interest. <laughs> I never had a lot of interest in the all-night rager. Like, sororities are uninteresting to me, full stop. Like, fraternities I, are uninteresting to me, full stop. I think the thing that I can never identify with when there is a group of, like, wild teens or something or wild college kids is that... Even if I was ever into party, if I was ever into partying in my life, I uh, I was not rude, you know. Like yeah. if if somebody next door was like, "Hey, you guys, you need to turn it down," I wouldn't like turn up the volume just to piss them off. Like I right. wasn't I wasn't on that many drugs to just have zero empathy for another right, person. Right, exactly. <laughs> you and know? Like, you know, I actually I had to live next to a bunch of fraternity boys when I was in college one year. Um, for complicated reasons, it was like block housing, and like they there isn't they're not allowed to live off campus, and uh-huh. so they live in blocks on campus, and so their their suite was right next to my suite. Uh huh. And we kind of had our own mini neighbors thing, um, in that they were <laughs> very loud, and I had an eight a.m. Latin class. I'm not making this up. And what I ended up doing because they were 
they started off being pretty unsympathetic and kind of being assholes about it was I like to play bocce and so I would just play bocce ball against their door whenever they were trying to study. Oh my god, that is like the nerdiest revenge <laughs> of all time. It's that it like just like they're trying to do they're trying to do their schoolwork and I'm fucking with them, which is what they're doing when I'm trying to sleep so that I can do my schoolwork. And once like when they came out like furious and they were like, What are you oh doing? And I was god. like, I'm playing bocce. I live here. <laughs> I can do that. And they were like, We're trying to study and I was like Oh, yeah? I was trying to sleep when you were trying to party. Like, do you want to talk about this like normal people, or should I continue playing bocce ball against your door? Oh, my God. Liz, we have to get this movie made. Like, has there ever been a Revenge of the Nerds with women who are really into bocce? (laughs) (laughs) Like, (laughs) it, it actually, like, once they realized, like, once they had that moment, we had that moment of, like, oh, okay. They, we actually actually made peace. And so, like, they would come over to my, my room, like, before they were going to have a party. They would knock on my door. They'd be like, yo, we're going to have a party. Um, we're going to try to, like, keep it down, you know, after midnight. But, you know, instead of calling security this time, would you mind just coming over if we're still being too loud? And this time we'll listen to you and turn the volume down. And I was like, yes, that would be great. Wow. I, I can live with this. And wow. in fact, <laughs> they ended up throwing a really cute Christmas party where they had, like, cleaned up their suite they dressed the whole thing with like christmas decorations they had dressed themselves up in their fanciest clothes they're you know all of this and they invited us over and made us cocktails oh my god you brokered a peace yeah i mean like that was like that's the thing like it is it is possible to make peace outside of these movies with people who are like determinedly determined to be assholes like you know it's like it is a thing that you could do yeah, and I mean, I would, I would, I would argue that the same goes for things that don't have to do with neighbors that you live next to. It can have to do with people on Twitter who are awful. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I mean, I'm, 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 I, I will probably end up seeing neighbors because I will be uh, bored after I move, and I will want to go see movies in the theater. So I, I'm, I, I don't hate its existence. I think it's interesting how the 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 trajectory that these movies have have gone on, like you know, all kind of born out of that, um, like original Seth Rogen and uh, Judd Apatow streak in the mid O's like we're into interesting territory now 10 years later or so so it's uh yeah I'm I'm down with it that's my that's my having not seen it that's my review down with it (laughs) um we didn't get a chance to talk about Angry Birds but um if you do want to uh see me and three of other Verge staff members uh Lizzie Plagic and Caitlin Tiffany among them who write uh frequently on the site you can go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash The Verge, where we talked about the Angry Birds movie uh, just minutes after walking out of the theater. Just fresh, hot takes. I talk about how um, Peter Dinklage's character represents uh, the federal government in the Angry Birds movie. He's an eagle, a giant eagle who doesn't want to um, address the immigration problem. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I like. Oh. <laughs> I will say this for neighbors. Like, it's not the best movie I've seen, but it's a good time, and it doesn't make me like despair for humanity. But yeah, I, like listening to you talk about Angry Birds before we like started recording this makes me like afraid and sad. 
Yeah, I really wonder how this movie's going to affect kids. Like it's 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 it it has some very very deeply embedded values in it that are troubling and I feel like would not have been in a film when we were like we would have had all sorts of weird sexist stuff in the films we grew up with but not like suspect all outsiders as the main the dominant uh moral of of a movie so so yeah i all sorts of interesting messages being sent to us at the cinema this summer and and more to come i will be seeing x-men apocalypse this weekend probably so i'm sure i'll have something to say about that all right well that does it for us this week thank you for listening you can subscribe to us on itunes verge esp you can find us on spotify by searching the verge and it should be listed there under our podcasts you can also subscribe to us on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash VergeESP. And you can follow us on Twitter. I am at Emily Yoshida and Liz is at Miss Lapato, MS Lapato. I haven't checked our comments lately, but maybe we should maybe we should go and see if we have any nice letters and read them just to give people an incentive to leave us nice, nice letters of appreciation. <laughs> and mean, last, mean ones. <laughs> yeah, the last time that I checked, it was like, this is really fun, except that Liz says, um, too much, for which I apologize, but also I, that is how I talk. I'm really sorry. People talking. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts recently, so I feel like I'm just like picking up all these like i'm like maybe we should read people's reviews so that they leave more reviews that seems like a good tactic um (laughs) so you know leave something we might read it and um that does it for us this week we'll be back next week thank you for listening bye guys bye